Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I've chosen a classic and well-known passage for this day of celebration. It helps us actually achieve the three goals that every faithful Christian celebration involves and includes. A look back at what God has done, a look around at where God has led us, and a look forward to all that God is leading us to. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we find ourselves in a book whose author we don't know, writing to what is clearly a group of believers, a a church or a series of Jewish churches. What we do know from reading the book is that there are some issues that the author is addressing immediately. Most significant among them are these. First of all, in this church or group of churches, there's a weariness that is settling in, a weariness in pursuing Christ and pursuing or advancing his mission. And with that weariness, watch this, a temptation to drift away from Christ and to neglect each other. There's secondly, we find in this book, this letter, uh, the evidence that there's an appearance of unbelief among some professing believers, bringing the possibility that they might actually abandon the faith altogether. Both of these issues come from an outward set of pressures, taking the form of of social and economic hostility, even persecution of the church because of its faith. And so they're in a time of testing. Their faith is being tested. And this time of testing is encouraging weariness. It's encouraging the temptation to drift away from Christ rather than drifting toward Christ. And so the author of the letter is writing and he seems to be saying, hold on to your faith and hold on to each other and persist in your mission. Hold on and hang on and persist. Now from the letter, it's clear that in the face of this social and uh, economic hostility, some have slipped in their church attendance. Some have stopped giving ear to spiritual instruction. Some have stopped growing spiritually and have become susceptible, he says, to all kinds of strange teaching. And all of this is true despite, watch now, despite the faithfulness, despite the love and the care that they had shown for each other before the persecution and the hostility started. So these believers are off track, they're distracted, and they seem to be heading further and farther from Christ. If you look at the uh, letter to to the Hebrews, you find that the first 10 chapters present Christ and compare him to all of his possible rivals. And the message is Christ is greater, Christ is greater. In chapters 11 to 13, that form the end of the letter, what we find is the author giving reasons for these believers to come back to the Christ they are drifting away from, even in their tough time. 
In chapter 11, he gives that inspiring display of men and women, heroes and heroines of the faith who went through difficult times, even greater than the times these Hebrews were going through. He presents them as going through difficult times, even more difficult times, and yet shows them and, and displays them as standing firm, staying strong, keeping the faith. In chapters 12 to 13, he brings to their minds and hearts a call, a call to fresh hope, a call to fresh faith. And he offers them remedies for, for any, of the, uh, any of them in the church who find themselves slipping or failing in their faith. And so our passage, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, is at the very heart of the remedies he offers. And the author says, therefore, verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we own you and proclaim you our great benefactor, our great forgiver, our great healer. And we bless you, Father. We celebrate you today for all that you have done for us, for all of the good you have brought to us as a church, as a family. All that we have been through, all that we have faced, all that we have experienced has only served to prove to us again and again and again your great faithfulness to us, and we bless you for it. My earnest prayer, Father, as we gather around on this day of celebration, as we gather around your word, that you might help us to claim a fresh day of faithfulness in our life as a church family, that we would do it together, and that you would then in turn use us for your glory and we ask this in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. All right, so here's a passage. Some of you are saying, I've heard at least 153 sermons on this passage before. I kind of get it. I can anticipate what you're going to say. So let's get on with this because I've got to go to me, Pueblo. Okay, I... I I hear you, I hear you. But actually, this well-known and classic text is a classic for a reason. What it has to say to all believers is of great value. What it has to say to us where we are in this season that we're in makes it even more urgent for us to hear it and to hear it carefully. For me, this season that we're in right now is captured very well by uh, Charles Dickens in his novel, Tale of Two Cities. It starts out this way. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of, of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. 
It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven or we were all going direct the other way. It was a season of great confusion, he describes. A season of great extremes, which is exactly where we find ourselves. Now, as a church, we have a lot to celebrate and be thankful for. We, we have so much that God has done that we, we uh, can praise him for. At the same time, where we are in this moment in 2021, we, we find ourselves in this same time celebrating, but in a time of great extremes, great division, great confusion, great fear. And our passage for the morning shows what all believers need in such a time as this. And it shows us that in chaotic, insecure, high-pressure times, believers need a confidence in who Jesus is now, a conviction about who they are together, a commitment to persist in what they've been given to do, and then a concentration on the joy that lay ahead. Or to put it another way, Christians living under pressure like we are need to be refreshed in these great truths, the supremacy of Christ, the necessity of the church, the urgency of persisting, and the joy that is coming. I want us to be refreshed. I want you to come away today refreshed. I want you to look with me, and I want you to consider applying the challenge of this passage, not just to you as an individual, but to us as a church where we are, by God's grace, in 2021. So let's get started. Christians living under pressure need to be refreshed, first of all, in the supremacy of Christ. Therefore, Paul says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, look to him, fix your eyes on him. Him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary, so that you may not grow faint-hearted. The author says, believers, you're in a race. You are racing under pressure in the presence of hostile enemies. But you're not surrounded only by enemies and pressures alone. You're also surrounded by stories of many people, a great cloud of witnesses who have faced what you're facing and worse, and still they finished well. And so can you. If you get free of the hindrances, if you get free of the sins that distract and distort your ability to run, and if, you will live looking at and considering the incomparable Christ. The Christ who has gone before you in the race. If you will focus on him instead of, watch now, watch now, instead of living and looking on the chaos that's going on all around you, if you will do these things, you can and you will, by God's grace, finish and finish well. Now, the applications of this passage and its challenge to our present day situation 
far exceed the time that I have to address them fully. But let me say this. We are in a season of great opportunity and great challenge for believers. The kind such as we have never seen in our lifetimes. Now, this is obvious to many of us given the pandemic, but much more than a pandemic is taking place around us. Ideas and events have conspired to bring about a seismic cultural shift that seems sudden and powerful and unthinkable and even unstoppable. We're in the midst of what columnist David Brooks writing in the Atlantic calls a cultural convulsion. One that produces what Ross Douthat of the New York Times describes as the sensation that though you're living in 2021, you wake up to find yourself experiencing so much change that it feels like you've woken up in 2030, like 10 years have happened in a day. We find ourselves in a land of political and social turmoil, of racial tensions, of shootings, of violence, of lawlessness. We find ourselves overwhelmed by a rise of a new set of values that bring an aggressive kind of indoctrination concerning what sex and gender are and what diversity and equity and inclusion are and what they involve and mean. We find ourselves in a land of confusion and chaos, sexual chaos and confusion. I saw an article just the other day of three men who fought to have all of their names put on a baby's gifts a birth certificate as a father as fathers we find ourselves in a land of outright hostility to the christian faith in the 20th century gospel bearing churches flourished in the 21st century they're being challenged and public opinion and public policy seem to be more and more hostile Biblical Christianity is seen by more and more people as a threat to cultural progress. Bad for America, bad for education, bad for children, bad for society at large. And as a result, even the good we do is becoming framed as bad. You can't hide from this change in small towns like Winston-Salem and villages like Clemens and Louisville and Moxville and Yakinville and all the Vols. One of our families told me just this past week or so that one of our CG kindergartners came home after the first day of school asking, Mommy, can a kid have two mommies and two daddies? And suddenly for many believers, it seems the whole world has turned upside down, even gone mad. And this is not where we want to be. But this is where we are. And in the midst of it, we have to be very careful where we look for life and light and how we respond. Ed Stetzer of Wheaton's, Wheaton College's Billy Graham Center comments insightfully. He says, alongside this massive cultural shift, there's also a great sorting going on in the churches of America Some in them are leaving and just not coming back. Some are leaving and going to other churches that reflect more closely their own political and ideological responses to all the change. And he says, and I quote, our people today are being discipled by their cable news. They're being spiritually shaped by their social media. 
and they're wanting their churches to align with their ideology and are far less concerned about it aligning with their theology. And I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, these things must not be. Why? Because there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that cable news or social media or politics or politicians, governments or educational institutions can give you or can give me that bring real life and real light. Only Jesus can. Only the Jesus of the Bible does. And we have to remind ourselves and refresh ourselves of the truth of who he is. If we don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, if we don't live considering him, we will fail in all that he's called us to do. I want to remind you of who he is. In Colossians 1, Paul says of Christ, it was by him. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and all things were for him. In other words, he owns everything, which means really the bank thought they owned this building, but Jesus really already had it. But we paid it off because we we were just tired of them bothering us for money all the time. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent, supreme in everything. Jesus is supreme. He is always the better. He is always the more. He is always the greater. There is no one like him, and there is nothing more worthy of your life or my life or our lives together than Jesus and his cause. Listen, I want to remind you, every single person alive today is running in a race, running with something, running for something that they think is worthy of their lives. And what they run for and what they run toward will be whatever it is they're focused on and whatever it is they truly value. So this first challenge to believers and to you and me is to look and to consider Christ is first and foremost of all a challenge of focus. It's a challenge to live focused on Jesus and nothing else. To keep him before our eyes as the greatest prize, seeing him as he really is, supreme over all things. Listen, listen, listen. Your kids, your spouse, your friends, your family, your life group, your coworkers, everyone you know and everyone you meet is running hard after something they believe will give them life. If you want to understand what's happening in our culture, our culture has shifted and is running hard after something that it believes will give it life. The truth is, so are you. You are running hard after something. Something that you believe will give you life. For many, it's being politically right. For others, it's being politically correct. For some, it's being physically or culturally safe. For some, it's being financially or emotionally secure, all in these troubled times. 
But I tell you, if we aren't convinced that Jesus is the supreme source and giver of life, if we aren't convinced that Jesus is more than enough, we will join everyone else around us in running hard after something that will leave us empty. For us, life here and life now requires a confidence in the supremacy of Jesus. If we aren't convinced of that, we might as well just shut this church down. Because ultimately, that is our message. Jesus is supreme over all. There's nothing else worth chasing after. Christians living under pressure need to recover and keep a second thing before them, and that is the necessity of the church. Notice with me how the author addresses and applies this challenge. He uses the first person plural or the second person plural throughout. He uses we and you all. To whom is he speaking as he writes? Well, he's speaking to the church of Jesus Christ, the local church, the churches who are receiving the letter. So look at this passage again with me and read it a little differently. Therefore, he says, since we, not you, not you as an individual, we, us, together, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us together also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily, and let us run together with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you, all of you, you all, y'all, you skies. I'm trying to reach all the people in my congregation. All the dudes, all the dudettes, everybody in the church of Jesus Christ may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Notice that this race we are in is presented to us as a race that is run, done, and won together. Together. It's not like the vast majority of races that you see in track and field or that you see on the Olympics, in the Olympics. This race is not a solo venture. One of the great, great damaging, damaging lies that is afflicting the church of Jesus in the United States is the idea that my Christian life is about me and going to church is about me getting what I need so I can live my best life now. And I wanna say, that's not New Testament Christianity. This book is not a book about me. 
The church is not here for me. God's bigger than me. So why? Why do we keep living as if we are solo runners in a race God never called us to run in? Okay, watch out. I'm preaching now. I think that's what y'all pay me to do anyway, isn't it? So, yeah. Just, do you have to be so loud? Can, can you not be soft and gentle and kind and just tell us sweet stories about the baby Jesus? How much he loves us. That's why so many commentators find in this passage actually a picture of a relay race. Not just any relay race, and actually a, a marathon relay race. In, in marathon relays, runners run day and night. They run multiple times in a day. They often have to navigate dangerous terrain. They have to keep track of where they are. They have to keep track of where they're heading, and they have to do it together. Course can be poorly marked at times and it can be confusing because they don't know it well, if at all. So one of the most critical elements in marathon racing is racing together, it is practicing together, it is planning with your team together, who will run, what leg, how you will hand off the baton. You have to stay connected. You gotta keep moving together as a team, encouraging each other as you run. Why? Because no one single person can run the race and win, except Jesus. That means we have to do handoffs. And a sloppy handoff can mean lost time or disqualification. So this race that we're in requires a team and a well-passed baton. Entire races are won or lost in the passing of that baton from one runner to the next. I want to remind you, if a, if a runner drops it, the race is over. It's interesting when you look at, at, at relay racing. I have done relay. I've never done marathon. I have no desire to do that. No, no even hint of a desire to do that. But it's interesting to just pause and think about the picture. Each runner depends on receiving the baton from one who went before. Each runner has the responsibility of passing it on to those who wait ahead. And so here we have this powerful and much needed reminder of what the church is meant to be and what it is meant to do. We are meant to run in the race of faith and to run it together. We're meant to run with a baton in our hands and hand it off well. 
Now, I want you to notice, if I could, just pause for a moment, having made that point, to ask you to notice something that uh, the, the writer to the uh, Hebrews says here that we often overlook. This race we are in together is a race that he says is set before us. Did you notice that? The race set before us. What he means is it's a race chosen for us. It's not a race we choose. It's a race he chooses. And what this means is this race that we are in, the route that we've been given, this season that we're in of challenges and changes is a season God saw coming, as we often remind ourselves. But what we, what we can miss is that this hard season is one that he has deliberately put before us and put us in. We, in other words, were meant for this. We were meant for the 2020s. We were remade and born again for the 2020s. God intended for us to be his people in a pandemic. God intended for us to be his people in a massive cultural shift. You say, I don't like it. I say to you, I'm sorry. I don't like it either, but you and I did not get to choose what season we live in. Acts 17 says that God determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling place. Why? So that men would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, even though he's not very far away. This is our season. This is our season. This is our time. You and I were meant to be in this body of Christ for this season. We were meant to be together. It's our time as David and his generation. It's time for us to serve the purpose of God in our own generation. And no matter how hard, how complex the race set before us may be in our day and our generation, by God's grace, it represents his purpose for us as we fulfill his purpose for all in our generation. Think about the lost people in your life, your neighbors, the people you work with, those not yet believing people. Do you realize that God had them in mind when he brought you into their life? God had your neighbor in mind when he moved you there, your boss and coworkers in mind when you got hired. He had your spouse and your kids when you got married. He had people in mind when he put life in you and then put you in their lives. God determined that you and I would live here now at such a time as this. We live where we live. We have the jobs that we have, our families and the neighbors we live nearby by God's plan and God's design. Why? Because God knew what he wanted to do in the 2020s 
and he knew whom he wanted to do it with, and that's you, and that's me, and that's us. He knew there would be brokenness. He knew there would be chaos. He knew there would be craziness. His purpose doesn't change. His heart for people doesn't change. So guess what? He saved you. He saved me. And he has us here now to carry out his purpose for all the brokenness around us. We were meant for this. We were remade for this. This is our season. You say, but I don't like it. How many times are you going to bring that up? Who does? But since when was that the most important thing in life? Oh, watch out. Watch out. See, that's what the world tells you. You're supposed to be happy. Who told you you were supposed to be happy? Wasn't Jesus. Who told you life was supposed to be all roses and flowers and happy birds and sunshine and sparkly things? Don't, don't forget the sparkly things. Unicorns and fairy dust and, you know, all that. It's the world that told you that. It's not real. It's not real. There are no unicorns. I'm sorry. How do we forget this? How do we forget this? God put us in, in a place for the sake of his purpose. He puts us in churches for the sake of his purpose. And by the way, can I just say this? Churches, the Bible calls churches families. Families. We've got this so deep in our um, systems. This life is all about me stuff. That we've forgotten that God puts us in specific churches at specific times to accomplish his purpose. We we forget this and we think that the church is not a family, but rather it's a restaurant where I drive up and I pull in and I check out your menu. And I have a gander at your cuisine and your ambiance. 
And as long as I like your menu, the cuisine and the ambiance, I'll stick around. But if your cuisine and your ambiance and your menu don't suit me, I'll just go and take myself to another restaurant. How do you do that with family? How do you do that with family? Now, if you've got a family that's poisoning you and it's, you know, yeah, you probably need to leave that family and find a better family. I get that. But the way in America we treat churches is really unconscionable, and it, and it shows how little we understand about what God teaches us about the local body of Christ. We're family. What would you think about a mom and dad? They've got three kids. They're four, six, and eight, and the mom and dad have a meeting one day and go, you know what? This, this just isn't this didn't happening for me anymore. These three kids, they're a pain. I'm just not feeling it. All right, honey. Let's ship them out and get a brand new batch. I mean, who does that? How many dads call a family meeting and say, well, you know, mom, she's really slipping these days. We tried a blonde model. Let's go get a brunette. And all the kids go, yeah, dad, let's go. We say, mom, you're out of here. Why do we do that with the church of Jesus Christ? Can I just tell you? We need each other. Let me tell you why. Because you're not perfect and I'm not perfect. And doing life together for the sake of Jesus, having to stick it out, when, even when things are going in ways that I don't like, having to stick it out, grow me up. And we need to grow up. Don't bring your sippy cup here. I'm not going to fill your sippy cup. Because I know what you'll do is you'll just take your sippy cup somewhere else if you don't like the way that sippy cup tasted. We are not your latest favorite restaurant. I am not your latest favorite chef. Well, you say, well, right now I don't like you at all. Okay. <laughs> we aren't, we're family through thick and through thin, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Isn't that what I told you guys? Didn't I marry you guys? Yeah. Did it work? So far. <laughs> oh, no. So far. Okay. <laughs> Is there just something you need to tell me, or can we, we want to talk after the service? <laughs> oh, you're good. <laughs> Are you sure? They, for, they forgot their anniversary yesterday, 11 years. What? Okay, just, uh, we're going to stop. Because we're family, right? When, when folks in a family have a problem, we all kind of get. Come, both of you forgot? Until a certain point. Your dad told you. 
Yeah, and you said, okay. <laughs> Do you see why we need each other? How many other places can you get direct personal counseling in front of 300 other people? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Who <laughs> Okay. I love you guys. <laughs> Your friends told on you. I'm sorry. It's just, but you know, once I saw it, this is what families do, right? We just go right after it and go, okay. All right. Hey, uh, free marriage books for you after in the Charleston Vine, anything you want. Grab a hat too. I don't know if it'll help, but <laughs> grab, grab a hat. Okay. This is exactly what I'm talking about. We need each other because life is messy, people aren't perfect. But you can't get this being a traveler, going from church to church to church. This is how we run, this is how we run well together, this is how we make an eternity's worth of difference, we do it together. See, life here and now requires a conviction of the necessity of being who we are together. I'm just going to say this straight up. We need you because God, if you're a member of Center Grove, because God put you here. And we need for you to be all in. All right. We got two more points. You're in deep trouble. But the good news is I'm getting hungry. So that does tend to speed things up a bit. Are y'all still with me over there in the dark? Students, are you with me? Okay, I'm watching you. All right. Don't mind this couple on the front row. That was not good, but y'all do better. All right, uh, Christians living under pressure need to be refreshed in the urgency of persisting. Persisting today for the sake of tomorrow. Therefore, notice what the scripture says. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so easily and let us run, here's the word, with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you will consider him, verse 3, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you, sinners for whom he endured all of this, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You will be able to endure if you know how Jesus endured. Well, how did he endure? To endure means to persist. That's a critical phrase there. Some want to respond to the changes in our culture with flight and hiding. Some want to respond with caving and compromise. Some want to respond to this cultural shift with a fight and resistance. The New Testament counsels none of these things. What the New Testament counsels is persistence. 
Persistence is an essential quality because the race course we have before us is one that is run in our broken world amidst broken people who need what we have by God's grace. And this means two things. First, because our race is in a broken world among broken people, it means that our part in this race will naturally have its share of hardships and pressures. We shouldn't be surprised by them. We must not be defeated by them. To faithfully follow Jesus is not and never has been easy. This means that the faithful following always requires choosing persistence even in the presence of pain. Sometimes it hurts to follow Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. Those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. That's what the New Testament tells us. So the author shows us that faithful following first requires choosing to endure as Jesus did. He says it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the agonies of the cross and despised the shame of it. He kept a peculiar joy before him that allowed him to endure in the race that the Father gives him. And that particular joy, I've wondered what it was that, what was it that kept Jesus in the race? What, what was it that kept him so faithful all the way to the end? And I think the answer is found in the last part of verse 3. Do you see it? It was to be back with his father. To be back with his father at his right hand. It was to be back at home. The joy for Jesus was being in the father's presence and to have run and run well. I think the joy that there was for Jesus was to hear his father say welcome home and to have his father smile. Son. And I want to remind you that we're all runners. We all run for somebody's smile. I want to remind you, too, that if you get the smile right, you will get the run right. If you run for the right smile, you will run in the right race. Fear of man is a snare. You run to make other people smile. You will never run in a race worth running, but you run. For the smile of Jesus, one day, one day, one day, here's the promise of the scripture. When you cross that finish line, Jesus will be there to meet you. And the sweetest words you will ever hear are the words from Jesus saying, welcome. This isn't it. We're racing our way there. Welcome home. Finally, the author shows us that the faithful following required is a matter of choosing to endure for the reasons Jesus did. Jesus' motivation in the race was not for his own glory. It wasn't for his own salvation, obviously, but for the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. 
And our motivation in this race, likewise, is never our glory or our salvation. Christ has already won that for us in the race. But our motivation is the glory of God and the salvation of others. We, we must endure. We must persist in the pursuit of God's purpose for our generation with self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age because God's purpose is the gospel, and we bear that gospel to share that gospel. So the urgency that is there is tied to the church's gospel mission and the implications of that gospel for eternity. To put it briefly, how we run together in the hard times has implications for how and whether others will live forever. In this race we're in, the end is not in question for us, but it is in question for others. If this is a race, and it is, if this is a marathon, and it is, if we carry the baton of life in the gospel, and we do, and if the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, and it is, then we must persist in the race for the sake of others just as Jesus persisted for us. We gotta stay in the race. We gotta run. We can't walk. We gotta stay in the race. We gotta keep practicing the inevitable and necessary handoff of the gospel that matters most. We've gotta hand the gospel off to our kids, our grandkids, those near and those far. We've got to hand the baton of the gospel off to the generations that are coming. And that means we've got to run now faithfully. This race matters because the baton matters. And here's the reality. The money, power, prestige of the mainstream media, big time sports, big business, big tech, and almost all the institutions of education and entertainment are now invested in making sin look normal, life-giving, light-giving, you and I, our kids and their friends, are being taught by a thousand messages every week to pay homage to something else, something less than Jesus, a rainbow flag or something. We can't assume that the next generation will grab the baton from us and know what to do with it unless we run well and stay on mission. Folks, that means that in the church of Jesus Christ, we've got to talk about the things the culture is talking about. We've got to talk about things like gender fluidity. If we don't, we will not prepare our kids for what is coming. Amen. We just don't have time anymore to talk about the sweet little baby Jesus and peace, love, and joy. The day has passed when we can teach our kids God made food. That's not enough. It is not going to hold them, hold them fast. It's not going to make them strong. We've got to teach our kids how to run, looking to Jesus with other uh, Jesus people, loving the people around them without loving their world. We've got to pass on the right beliefs and the right reasons for those beliefs. Life here, life now requires a commitment to persist in what we've been given, what we've been asked to do, to hand off the gospel to the next generation, trusting them to do the same when the race is done.
Everybody in this room is running. Everybody in this room has got a baton they're carrying. Some is money. And the kids are watching you and they're going, okay, that's what it is. That's, that's the deal. Right there, right there. That's it. That's it. That's what dad's running for. That's what I should run for. A lot of options. There's just one gospel that gives life and light. And as a church, here's our commitment. We know that we're not going to help your kids be ready for this new culture with pizza and parties. Now, I'm not against pizza. I'm not against parties. But I just know entertaining kids to death is not going to get them ready for a culture of death. We've paid our debt, that debt of love we is still there, that debt of love we owe, Romans 13, 8. And part of paying that debt of love is training moms and dads and boys and girls how to run, how to run well, and how to carry the gospel. I want to teach dads and moms how to hand it off. I want to teach students how to, how to take it up themselves. I'm tired of seeing our own children sacrificed in a culture of darkness and death because we handed them a pizza rather than handing them Jesus. How many kids you got? Two. Y'all going to have any more? It's family here. It's family. <laughs> this is what your kids need. Josh, stand up. Take this over here to him and tell him he needs that. <laughs> no, seriously, Josh. Listen to me. Your kids need this. You cannot fail them in this. Be God's man. Lead your family. Run and run well. And hand them the gospel.
supremacy of Jesus, necessity of the church, power of persistence, the expectation of joy. It's what we have. That's what we're promised. Let's run well so the day comes when we hear Jesus say, Welcome home. Father, how we love you. We bless you. For your great mercy shown to us in Christ Jesus. We are so easily distracted. The Hebrews were not the only ones who were vulnerable to strange and false teachings. Lord, you put us in this season. You put us together as a family. Here is my simple prayer. Find us faithful in the race, carrying the gospel, bearing the gospel, sharing the gospel. Grant that we would raise up another generation who is not just faithful like we are, but more faithful than we are. That is my prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.